Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Keisha Kihano of Label Sessions talks to John V. Wilshire. John is a leader spanning diverse projects in strategy, innovation, futures, and design for firms around the globe, as well as teaching his craft as a visiting professor at IED Barcelona. The founder of Smithery, his goal is to help organizations make things people want, rather than make people want things. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, John. Lovely to have you here. Here at Label Sessions, we think you are such an interesting futurist, innovation guru, and founder. Um, could you please introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience? So what are you known for? Uh, what am I known for? Uh, so I it, I think it's context dependent. It depends on who you ask. Um, the one thing that I liked was like, I went to a, a games conference. Um, I, I, the director of which is my friend, Ollie. And she introduced me to some other people there and said, this is John. He's, he's games adjacent. And it was like, oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. But I really like it. I like it because I am adjacent to lots of things, games and strategy and futures and design and so on. And so I've always had a, a, little, difficult, a little difficulty in going, I'm just this one specific thing because I like lots of things. Um, and I'm really interested in the gaps in between them and what emerges from uh, that rather than just taking what is given and sort of like saying, oh, yes, I just do this one thing, essentially. So I'm, is it generalism? Probably, but as well, a continual thirsty generalism of going, what happens if you take A and B and find the letter that no one's seen in between? Oh, absolutely. Love that. And I feel like so many people now are something adjacent, like so many people are doing juggling different things and it makes life interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. And it's also where the new stuff, the future stuff will come from. Um, especially we're 23 years in but even it still feels like we're just about moving from the 20th to the 21st century in a way um, and so part of that will be continually discovering the new ways in which groups, communities organisations, customers users are constituted and share information and so on and that's, and it is new stuff it's not just stuff that's kind of like hidden elsewhere that you just have to find, you've got like genuinely new types of jobs, types of industry, types of working will emerge from this time. There's a, I was thinking about this earlier, that sort of, if you ask people about, give me a futures quote by a famous William, most people will sort of like the, the William Gibson one of sort of like the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. But I prefer the, the William Burroughs one, which is when you, when you cut into the present, the future leaks out. And it's all about just sort of like taking all of the kind of things that you see and saying, okay, if I start dismantling some of this and find something new in what emerges, that becomes what we will be working on and for in the next 10, 20 years. No, I absolutely love that. And um, speaking of good quotations and things, so here at Label Sessions, we love your tagline. I'm going to get this right. How to create things people want rather than making people want things. So there must be a story behind this. How did you come up with this? Yes, uh, there very much is. So making things people want rather than making people want things uh, goes back to starting Smithery in 2011. So I used to be chief innovation officer at a media agency called PhD, which is a brilliant agency to be at and a great role to have at a great agency. And 
it was a really interesting time because I'd worked in that innovation role from about 2006 to 2011. So the emergence of Web 2.0, social media, really beginning to push into what does media become when it is something that anyone can create and share and it sits in the middle of people as a, a connective tissue, which was very different from the kind of like 20th century um, model of, kind of like media. As part of that, I was really interested in going, oh, but you can use all of digital and internet tools, approaches, ways that people are bringing themselves together to change how companies work, to really start everything from product inception and new ideas to customer service to all of these different things. There's a, there's a role for the internet and digital to play in there. But because we were a media agency, clients were going, well, it's too late for that. We just need to sell the thing. How can we use all of this interesting stuff just to sell the things that we already do? So I really wanted to push into this idea of sort of like, given all we have at our disposal now in the ways that you can talk to people and work with them and do things for them, more organizations need to think about how do you make things people want rather than make people want things. And that's a really nice way of just sort of like letting people just sit with that for a while. So they go, oh, maybe the thing that is going through our product chain and the, the services we provide could be different. Where might we start from? So it's really that 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 statement, that ethos, that um, that slogan is just something that invites people to reflect on their own organization first and go, how might things be different? And how do we go about that process? And um, when you put it like that, when you actually verbalize it, it makes sense to put the customer first. That almost sounds like step number one. Yeah. But a lot of people don't put it, like you said. So no, exactly, and it's the and it's because of the things that people inherit. So you come into a company and you're sort of like you're given this role, and you're and you're in this team, and then that team is in part of a department, and that department's part of a division, and someone has constituted all of this stuff that you think, well, everyone must have a very specific role to play in this. Um, so so no one is so that you just feel encumbered by everything around you finding new ways to work between departments and disciplines, roles and responsibilities is almost the, it's it's one of the things I love uh, of when you're sitting in a, an organization and you'd be sitting with some HR people and they go, oh, well, this is very good, but this sounds like an IT thing as well. And it's like, yes. Do you know anyone in IT? And they're like, oh, oh, yes. And you go, well, we could just, we could just go next door and talk. Oh, oh, right. Okay. So metaphorically, you step into the room next door and then you and an HR and IT have a conversation. They go, oh, yes. Well, this sounds very good, but it does sound like a, it sounds like a product thing now. It's like, yes, you know anyone? Oh, oh, actually we do, yeah. And so it's like you you begin to stitch organizations together differently just by being small, just by sort of like having the sort of like letting them find the connections they need to make within their own organization and just supporting that process can sometimes just be, it's the convening of those conversations which is one of the most powerful things you can do. No, exactly. And it's always good for different parts of an organization to know what the other's doing, and it's the collaboration. Yeah. That's well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. And, and, and being and in leadership, it's about sort of like, okay, how do I not cascade a vision down through an organization, just make everyone do the thing that I want, but you go, how do I set myself up that I can make the most of all of these perspectives of all of the people and all of the customers that we have here and let people get on with finding the new visions themselves rather than just 
trying to line everyone up into my vision for things. That's the, you need to be sort of a bottom-up leader rather than a top-down one. Because only from that will new things emerge, which will, you know, that will be the next 10, 20, 30 years of your business, rather than the idea that you had two years ago that you're still trying to make the organization do. Thinking of innovation leaders in big businesses, um, are there things that you think companies and leaders themselves should either start doing or stop doing to create things that people want? The key in here is the word want. So there's a, in a book I read like 15 years ago, it was by Peter Doyle, Value-Based Marketing. There was an interesting three definitions of, he called them needs, but I call them wants, because like if Maslow doesn't say it's a need, it's a, it's a want, it's an optional. Um, and he, he referred to them as existing, latent, and incipient. So existing wants are just the things that are lying around. Markets are probably highly competitive. People have got lots of options, lots of different price points. The thing exists, it's there. So if you think about the perhaps the computer uh, industry in the noughties, you're going, lots of different options, lots of computers around. You can buy desktops, you can buy laptops. Wherever you are in that market, you can go and get one. Latent ones are the things that you go, no one's doing yet, but customers can probably get to. So there was a real shift in the noughties and sort of people using the internet almost as just kind of like a, a blank box so dell did this and starbucks did this and goes like what should we do what would make this better and people would say oh you should make shipping free or you should make coffees bigger and milkier um but in essence it was just about sort of like okay so your customer base can get to this they can spot the things that they know would improve your product or service so that's latent ones incipient ones are really interesting because People don't know if they're technologically possible or environmentally responsible or economically affordable and so on. There's lots of different factors go into it. So really, to get to incipient wants, what you're trying to do is find that dark matter, find the, the, the possible space by your research program that is getting to the thing that people can't quite describe but in the way that they talk about their lives and they do things currently, you go, there is there is something in here that we could get in. So that might be the iPad in that context of going back to the kind of like the computer. Look, no one was hanging around in the mid noughties going, what I'd really like is a keyboardless screen that I would use to sit. And yeah, you look around the world now and it's kind of like, it's kind of like this has become a recurring theme. So this is how people interact with this information. But that was not something you were going to get through latent ones. So having a structure of thinking about your research program and innovation of going, okay, so what, what are we dealing with this existing? What are we dealing with this latent? And how are we getting to those incipient ones? I like to use the metaphor of and existing ones is basically foraging. You just walk around and pick these things up, but so can everyone else. Latent wants is like farming. You have to disturb the soil a little more, but as you learn about it, you will sort of go, okay, I can, I can increase the yields here. I can get a better crop year after year and it's worth the effort. Incipient wants is like mining, and you're going. This is hard, and you might not know where to look. But if you find a gold seam, then whoa, I on this makes it really worthwhile. But there are things you can learn over time that sort of about the the metaphorical geology of the place or the indicator species that tell you this is probably a good place to dig. Let's go there. So balancing your research program to think about those three wants is the thing that I think everyone should have a view on. Definitely. And I find in my life, it's you're looking for things not where you expect to look for them. Yeah. 
So something, some, something that just came up that I was thinking about was before when I was actually babysitting, um, there were the kids that I was babysitting where I was like, oh, what do you think the future's going to be like? And then we were drawing it out and everything. And the things that they were saying, I was like, I don't think that we're far off that, honestly. Yeah. I think there's, there's a world where that could happen. And you think about all the, you know, worthy or the, the movies from before that were just or back to the future, thinking about what could be. And I'm like, you, I mean, some things are very far off, don't get me wrong, but other things you're I can see the people are developing that. It's not that wacky. This is a this is a really interesting point and something that and it's really interesting so like you reference children are really good at this. Of like, okay, imagine a future. Go. So they will imagine you a future. They will draw it down and they'll draw things and so on. But then you can put that to one side and go, imagine a different one. They go, sure. And they'll give you a really different one. And then they put that aside and go, imagine a different one again. And their capability for imagining different futures is endless. And that is something that you go, okay, how do I capture that in teams? So a lot of the kind of like the futures courses or work we do is often about sort of like, okay, what we're not trying to do is just like list out three futures and pick the best one. This is about developing muscles in your brain, which are kind of like, okay, how can I constantly be bringing together seemingly unconnected things imagining a future of thinking of the implications putting it aside and doing it again and doing it again because the more you do that the more you rehearse putting these things together it affects your daily monthly yearly work so suddenly you have made all of these different connections before and so we've created various different tools and constructs for different organizations to do that sometimes we have a, a pack we call Futrep, so future report and it's like 52 little scenarios but none of them are right none of them is definitely going to happen but what we do is you deal three and you say right imagine a future in which that and that and that happens tell me about it and so the people in the organization will go okay well the threats that we might look for are this or the opportunities are this and whatever else and you go fine good move on here's another three cards tell me about this one and you are just helping them get good at spotting the connections in between the things rather than the things that we put on the cards in the first place that's what we're interested in sort of like is how people are thinking and how could we can advance that thinking for them to be really good at dealing with whichever present comes along yeah i absolutely love that um and so i know you have all of these little exercises tidbits on how to help leaders but i think to go big picture overarching if you were to give one piece of advice to leaders who want to make change happen what would that piece of advice be i think leaders who want to make that change happen in their organization can't buy it in it's like you go how do i train the people that i have and provide learning opportunities for them to work with futures in that way so that we start imagining lots and lots of different futures and it's not just uh, something we get a report from McKinsey on with four different futures and go, all right, we can read this and appreciate it and then we'll put it to the side and so on. This is... It is, a, it is a skill. It should be rehearsed. It should be practiced. It should be your people doing it internally um, because then they will be able to do it again and do it again and you will become... So part of uh, a recent project we're doing 
is very much that on just sort of, look, we're making an organization much more anticipatory because we're getting them to scan for signals, because we're getting them to assemble trends, them to spot the kind of things in between. And part of my kind of my, the, my ongoing position on work is like, I don't want to scale, I just want to operate at scale. And the way to operate at scale is to kind of like, is to teach people internally in organizations how to do this rather than go, well, this is magic and secret sauce and only I can do this, but I've got another three friends who can do it and then six and then whatever else. And you just end up with this kind of group of outsiders working in your organization who go away. You have to learn to do this yourself. When coming, I'm guessing it's the big bosses that come and get you in to say, you know, we need to think about how to make change. And they ask people to come in and do these sessions with you. Do you you ever find that there's any resistance from others? If if there is resistance... It can, there are there are ways that you can mitigate that within different circumstances, and that's often about letting people be a different person than they are in work. So, and that can be let's all so you protect. Well, the, one of our favourite tricks is we've uh, run a session over a, a week where we pretended people had left the company that they were all part of, and they've done exactly what people do in industries: is let smart people leave. And they imagine what they do without the burden of the organization, without the burden of their job roles and responsibilities and so on. If you were a startup team in this industry, what would it look like? And then at the end of the week, you get them to switch back and go, you have just acquired your own startup. Now, which of these ideas is the one that you want to advance? Because actually it meets the objectives you have and the vision that you have internally. And whatever. You can even do it in subtle, you introduce it in simpler ways. So... At the start of a workshop, we do our game called Mundane Superhero. So your mundane superhero is the thing that you do really, really well. It is actually super boring. So my mundane superhero power is I am parent IT man. So wherever I am in the world, in a single phone call, I can probably sort out my mum and dad's iPad problems. I am parent IT man. And so you get people all sharing their mundane superhero power. I am list man. I am garden girl i am make you anything from the fridge based on just three ingredients guy whatever it happens to be um it just twists people's perception of each other which is incredibly important within a an organization where people know each other so you just suddenly go oh hang on we can be different people so there are ways of just seeding that in so that actually Again, you're working in between the known existing present to find those new parts of the future. It's about future you and about future us. So in that way, you can let some of the resistance dissipate into, oh, it's all right, because we're not working in a reality anymore. This is different. I think that's so good. And it's something that within the company, they can't really do. It's helpful for someone else to come and say, pretend that you're not here. Yes, yes, exactly. Pretend that context is different. Pretending is pretending in itself is a superpower and it's not mundane. It's something we all. So jumping from this to a different context, yep. we know that you don't just help companies with innovation and future thinking. You teach it too. Yes. So you're a visiting professor at IED in Barcelona. Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong, the annual summer innovation and future thinking course. Yes. So it's a two-week uh, course called Innovation and Future Thinking in Barcelona and... Uh, next year will be the 10th anniversary of the course, which is super. But I mean, of all the places to do 
an innovation in future thinking course in the middle of Barcelona in such a fascinating city, which is actually fairly compact, yet still has so many different cultures, businesses, organizations, social issues, amazing opportunities, lots of different things going on there. So it's scream it's a city that screams at people. The architecture is beautiful. Yes. Yes, totally. I've never been in the Sagrada Familia. I didn't get the tickets in the end, but I apparently it's awe inspiring. It is. It's the it's part of okay, so this is this is this is a side point. But the Sagrada Familia, and so just the way of the way the stained glass has been designed, but then also all of the architecture in the main rooms where the stained glass moves into. You've all these different colours and shapes at play, but you can just stand there for half an hour and watch the room literally change. And it is fascinating. But in part, it has stimulated a kind of... This is like an ongoing research thesis for me in that information should be thought of as light and not liquid. By which I mean... Over the last 20 years, the way that people will use metaphors around information, especially in computing and digital internet terms, is that everything from it's a tsunami that will sweep over us. It is dangerous. It's huge. It's powerful. It is data is kept in the cloud. Um, we have data lakes. Data is the new oil and so on. So people continually use liquid based metaphors to refer to information. But that assumes that the information, therefore, is homogeneous. Every molecule of water or molecule of oil, whatever you want to choose, is the same. So we're just saying it's one big body of the same stuff, which is categorically not what information is. Information is, by description, the differences that make a difference. All of these parts are different. So actually, when you lead into the idea that information is light, not liquid, you go, it is pixels on a screen, it is particles flying around the air. It is a gathering of stuff clustered that you see through your where you stand in a particular way. But the person who stands to the side might see something different. And all of this information will be remixed and reconstituted in different ways for different people. And you go, okay, so actually the information that we are discussing here is lots and lots of different things that we can make new visions from or give customers a new insight with. And then you find that actually we use information as light as a metaphor all the time. Even from the very basic of going, what somebody says, I see. It's not that I literally see, it's just that I have now arranged the information in my head in a way that the mind's inner eye is telling me what's going on. Or seeking moments of enlightenment, or if something is opaque or unclear, you suddenly go, oh, hang on, we need to lean more into the language of information being like light than it being like liquid. I think that's incredible, and the um, the way that you phrase it is also very beautiful. Oh, thank you. Is that something that you teach, or is that something that, something that you're just currently thinking? It's something that I've now put into the course um, as like, part of the introductory couple of days, because it's a way of thinking about the information that students will be collecting. So, And the students will vary from... They're like, so like the youngest will be like 24, 25 year old master students. And then the oldest will be people looking for second careers. So like 50, 55 year olds going, I want to change what I do. And I'm looking for the next thing after, after, after what I've done successfully. 
But just like bringing a mixed group like that together and say, okay, it's your job. If information is light, your job is catching the light. We are going to walk you around the city in a variety of different contexts with different people seeing things in different ways. Um, and we want you to collect all these signals together so that we can start imagining from the stuff that exists in the present and from what you learn of the past of the city, what possible futures might lie out there by bringing together these pixels of information and having new views, new visions. Um, and we have a little, uh, in fact, we have a little tool that we started making on the, the course, which is just, it's a little viewer. And it says at the top, what is this? And then it says, what is it for? How did it get here? What does it do? And so on. But you just point it at things. And we just give this to the students at the beginning of the course and go, okay, so just use this and start to change the way you think of the environment. What is this? How did it get here? What do you do? And my favorite bit of that first week of the course is when people come in and say things like, and these are like verbatim quotes. One guy came and said, I can't stop seeing like this. So it changed the way he perceived the city and everything. We were just looking at everything and beginning to interrogate all those different things. And then a woman uh, said, I'm really enjoying my new eyes, which is, that's, that's when you know, right, we're onto something here. People are beginning to pull things out of the things they see around them in the way that they're going to need to in order to move into the second week, which is, imagining different futures but then also thinking about how you apply that in different work contexts i think that's great and i know that in a similar way a lot of people on social media at least in my circles are moving away from selfies and photos of them but on stories and things like that they do exactly the same they post something of oh mundane street or a car that's just driving past I never really noticed it before, but in this light, in this moment, it just, it felt different. And then they record that and they went, I don't know about you, but there's something beautiful in the mundane. That is really, that's a really interesting observation. I like that a lot because it's almost, are we moving in certain places to sort of little flipping the camera around? I know we that's just like, it's a button now, but it's a kind of like, I, people are not so interested in who you are and where you're standing, but what you're seeing and what you're thinking. Actually, that's the next level of the kind of like that notice, collect, share thing, which I, is in my friend Russell's book. Um, I might talk about that later. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentor, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. That's a perfect segue. <laughs> in every conversation with the team from sessions that we've had with you, you've always mentioned really interesting folk that you work with and you've recommended some writers and concept uh, concepts. Are there any people or any books that you really rate and that you'd be willing to share with the sessions audience? Some may not be over, but um, I think we can start an, an autumn reading list. So anything Right then, book club. <laughs> book club, here we go. Um, so given I was just talking about it, um, the, and as you can see, I am not, I'm not short of books, so therefore kind of like choosing whichever ones it's going to be is, uh, you know, a challenge. Um, but newer ones. Uh, so as I mentioned, my friend Russell Davis has just uh, 
I written a book called Do Interesting, which is out. So it's part of the Do Book series. But it is that idea of sort of like notice, collect, share. Just what does it mean to start paying attention to the world about you? How do you collect that stuff? And how do you then turn it into things that connect you with others, inspire different groups, different whatever else and so on? It's, it is such a wonderfully written little instructive book for us all and it'll only take you like an hour and a half to read but i promise you it will change the way you think about what your work is and therefore what you collect with this marvelous wonderful supercomputer we all just travel around with um so that's russell's book second book i jay owens dust now it's almost like jay has taken russell's thing of notice collect chair i'm to heart this started with a, a blog she was writing i think eight ten years ago on dust just noticing the dust in her own flat in london going, where does this come from that like, i'm the only person that lives here what, what, the, the, is it just parts of me is it kind of like oh, the, is it parts of the suit of the city coming in from so on it has grown into this story of uh, the, the the story of the world and the trillion particles. It is just it refers to everything we are doing to the planet, but looking at it through these kind of like minuscule different things. It is as a th- as a thesis, you go sort of like you start the book thinking, oh hang on, really from dust to the state of the planet, but within the first chapter, you are sold, you are in. It is wonderful. Um, so the and it's and it's funny reading those two, so Russell's book and Jay's book together. Other things, uh, so recently in, so Eric Zimmerman's The Rules We Break, which is all about, so he's a games designer, but also a design professor, and this is really an, uh, an advancement of his idea that we have entered a ludic century, by which the sort of, like, he means that sort of, the way that games work, actually because of digital and internet and computers and the way that information is constantly moving and re-articulated in different ways means that we can learn a lot about how we deal with each other and work and uh, constituting ideas and whatever else from the way that games have always been designed. So that's the rules we break. That's great. Um, and then anything else? Oh, I think the most important book of last couple of years is The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrill, um, which is essentially, it's brilliant because it says, it looks at all of the recent and uh, archaeological and anthropological evidence, which is coming from civilization studies across the world to say, it's weird to think that we've only been thinking that we used to be hunter-gatherers, then we were farmers, and therefore kings, right? It's weird to think that humanity has only ever tried things one way. And then if you look at all the evidence, you go, well, that's not true. And so they talk about sort of like different controls and different freedoms, but it will really make you think differently about everything from civilizations to communities you're part of or whatever else. Um, oh, and then two future books. I, the... For your awesome reading list, uh, How Infrastructure Works by Deb Chatra, which is, uh, and we got Deb to come and teach on the course this year in Barcelona because we were talking about the future of water. Um, and it was brilliant. She made us think so hard about where does water come from? Where does it go? How much do you know about it? How does it work differently in cities around the world? 
but imagine that played out across all infrastructure and how cities and countries and everywhere else works. Um, and then finally, Future Cultures by Scott Smith and Susan Cox-Smith, um, building on their work in How to Future. That is a chunky, chunky list. I know what I'm right. going to be doing for the rest of 2023. We'll be just going through those books. I don't need anything else on my reading list. Well, and it's the and here's the thing. So I have a, a side point. I have lots and lots of physical books rather than digital books because you can assemble them in a library. So talking about back to the in-betweenness thing. So I organize my library in a particular way so that books which are working at a similar scale work together. So in one corner, there's all the kind of like the prototyping and the individual and the creativity and so on. And then you scale it up into design and architecture and sort of like that. So still it's like a design process, a creative thing. And then going out the side, you start to become a bit less about the individual and more about small groups and teaching and whatever else. And then into culture change and transformation and whatever else. If you assemble a physical library in that way, the delightful thing that happens is you can aim for a book that you know is there and miss. So you go looking for the book on prototyping you know about, and then you just go, oh, oh, but that, that might be useful. And you just find this sort of this slight adjacency and go, I'm actually going to pick the kind of like the game design book rather than the prototype. Um, so assembling your library in that way is a really useful way to generate new things. Just you it as soon as this call is finished, let me get all my books out. Yes, but I want everyone in the world to sort of look to uh, to bring all the books out and reorganize them in a way in which we'll discover new things and then end end of this fad for organizing books by color. Please, because also lots of books are Please. different colors and then you can't. I mean, I know, I know. I'm still on. Just buy wallpaper. If you want something that looks nice, just buy wallpaper. These are books; they are for something, which is not exactly. That. But I'm currently on a one book in, one book out system, so I gotta get on reading so I can get those books that you said in. <laughs> nice, yes, yes. Fair. I'm running. I, I, as you can tell, I'm not. I'm not on a one out one system, but very soon I need to be. You have your bookshelves are much more plentiful than mine. I don't have that much space. Well, I, this. I mean. Now we're into a longer conversation about kind of like space and urbanism and sort of like how much space people need to live well. That's a more conversation than that. That is. Uh, actually, there's. Uh, what did I come across? This? Oh, it's. Uh, I think it's a William Keegan article in the Observer, but just talking about economics. So I did economics and econometrics at uni. Um, having gone there to do English, right? Weird. Um, but Keegan was talking about how when you get back to it, what is economics? Economics is about living well. How do you help a country to live well? It's not about the finances and GDP and whatever else and so on. It is about providing the circumstances in which people can live well. How do you live well at the point of need? And that touches on health and it touches on housing and it touches on transport. Um, and we need to get back to that. To sort of really reimagine the discipline to go, that's the thing at the central heart of it. And what does it mean for everyone to live well? I wish my economics teacher sold me the course like that. I also did economics at university. Ah. But they went in for the good luck with your math skills. Let's go. I wish that was my introduction to the course. Yes, this is, uh, I think there's sort of like two unfortunate things have happened to economics. Um, 
in the last 30 years. One was, weirdly, when the Berlin Wall fell. It was like, wow, clearly this version of capitalism was one, so therefore we just need to teach this. This is the... the, the and so for 20 years after that, you had the kind of like going, well, we're just going to teach this and we're just going to point to all the other stuff as stuff that failed. Um, and then the second thing is computers. Suddenly, because the distribution of computer power meant that all economics students could sit on top of econometric regressions because they say, hey, we can turn this into a science now, finally. It's not a science. It's an art. Deal with it. Very well said. Very, very well said. Um, because I was interested in all the behavioural economics and everything to do with that, and then the course was not that at all. Yeah, exactly. But by the time we send our children to university to do economics, then maybe it will Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, moving on to our last segment, it's our quick-fire questions. Right. So these can be slightly more weird and wacky. Yep. But... We'll see how it goes. Okay. I like the first one. The first one I think is my favorite. Okay. But Let's see. If you were a benevolent dictator, what would be the first thing you would do or first order that you would give? As a benevolent dictator, I'm getting rid of job descriptions because I think that as soon as you give someone a job description, they think they just have to do the things on that bit of paper and that everyone has imagined all the other bits of paper that have job descriptions on them. So people just do the things written and all of the liminal space in between doesn't get done. If you get rid of job descriptions, people do the stuff that needs to get done. I've not heard of that one and I actually really like it. I'll pull it out when other people are answering the question. I was like, interesting one. I've heard a lot of work. Uh, quick fire question number two. Where do you go to feed your brain creatively? I go to other people in whichever modern constitution of that. It's, it feels like a weird time in the internet because by and large the silicon valley is failing communities of all different shapes and sizes from robbing robbing them of twitter to groups where you can't see the stuff that's happening in the algorithm so i cherry pick where i can i'm operating across lots of different networks but people in other people's heads seeing how pe other people see that's what that's what fires me if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, so I think I'd I'd either like to just be writing stories because, you know, it's like every, every so often you go, oh, there's a great story here about somebody should write this. And so like for example, one example, someone should write a story based on the fake brands of that you find in Aldi and whatever else, because it's so fascinating you can get that close to saying, well, no one, no one, no one thinks that seriously an Aldi brand is a real brand, so we can just copy it all we like. Um, Someone should take that and then move it into sort of like people, the story of people just pretending to be other people and other brand managers and things. And goes, I am now the fake Elon Musk. My job is to be the fake Elon Musk because I'm the fake brand manager for this, of this fake brand. That's an interesting story. Someone should write that story. I've not got time. So I could be doing that. Um, or I could just be hiding in an academic niche with even more books. Oh, the amount of alternate universes there are out there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. To go from what you think you could be doing, thinking about it on a context of the present you, to going to the past you, what did 14-year-old John want to be when he grew up? So uh, my favourite subject at school was English. I wanted to I wanted to write stories. I thought the only job you could get in it was be a 
journalist, perhaps. Um, I do feel that's bullet dodged in a way if you look at the last 20 years of newspapers. Um, I do remember for about six months also wanting to be a camera operator. Like just a television camera operator. I think I really meant director of like just got, I just want to tell stories on film because I love movies. In the end, my dissertation at university was an econometric evaluation of the demand for cinema. Oh, very interesting. But I think, in my head at least, that you already do that, especially with your little, your card that you brought out. That's, you're directing how other people see the world. So I think you did do that. I think, yeah, I think it's just, uh, maybe maybe it's just an in-between version. It's the next job description. Yeah. That's, funnily enough, my, my friend Dan, uh, so a guy called Dan Hill, um, also came up to, uh, to Barcelona once to teach on the course. And we were just chatting and, and like he threw away his in the sign and goes like, I don't know what it is you do, but I don't think that I think one day people will have a name for it. I'm happy with that, I'll take that. Maybe you don't need a name for it. People can just feel it. Nice. I like that. What do you think is overhyped right now? And is there anything that you think is interesting that isn't being picked up on mainstream? Just because it's happened to mean three there's a loose raw there's a loose law in futures where if a thing happens three times, you go, oh, hang on, this is a thing. And going back to the idea of the Silicon Valley business model failing communities of all sorts, I think there is there's a resurgence in small internet of just being able to bring people together in a group or a community or around a local sports club or a group of interest or just running a small network for professionals. I think there's going to be a resurgence in small internet and whether it's the Fediverse and whether it's things that are interoperable, I don't know. I'd hope so. But I think there will be more jobs for more people making little internet rather than big internet. So that's the kind of, the, that's the, kind of the, the non-mainstream thing, I think, at the moment. Uh, the overhyped thing, I mean, it's probably overhyped to talk about AI as being overhyped which is fairly meta. Um, I think it is, but I don't think that's an, I don't think that's a good enough critical position to have on it. I think people have to be a lot more specific about why it is overhyped. Um, my wife and I were talking, so Helen, is, I, we were together from Smithery. Um, we were talking the other week and I can't remember who it was, but so it's one way of changing the way that people talk about AI is just talking about it as applied statistics. And suddenly every headline you see in the press makes sense and you go, oh, how applied statistics are transforming this school's uh, recruitment process. Okay. So it just becomes less shocking whatever else. You just go, oh, it's just applied statistics. Yeah. It just grounds it in a reality. I think two very good points there. But um, on a sort of my way of thinking of your first point about the smaller parts of the internet I've been thinking the same thing I think that my generation and, and well, Gen Z as well they are looking for people who are like them and finding more of the who their identity is and trying to find other people that fit in with that and they find there's a place to fit in and the more that people find their little groups and that smaller part of the internet, the more that growing and building, whether for good or for bad, because then people sometimes get stuck in those bubbles. Yeah, and so the, then the interoperability comes into play 
of how do you sort of like make things travel? Do you need things to travel? Because didn't things, I mean, communities like that didn't used to travel. The maybe the discrepancy that we've seen at the moment is so like you got all people who get stuck in filter bubbles. Yeah, but they're stuck in filter bubbles that then they fight out onto like giant global terms across Twitter or Facebook and so on. So if you just let nutters be nutters in small parts of the internet that no one has to see and doesn't bother anyone, maybe that'll just fade away. I think the key part there is as long as it doesn't bother anyone. No, this is like, and, and then you go, as long as it doesn't bother anyone to what extent. Yes. And then to let, guess, we, we open up a larger and delightful philosophical conversation that we could have for hours. That's it. So at university, I did politics, philosophy, and economics just for these kind of talks and questions. I, I really love Yes. Moving on to the last question. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Um, how weird am I? Uh, if you ask, I have, I've, some people I've watched with for a long time almost have a sort of a, a countdown to when the first sci-fi analogy comes. Um, and they're waiting for it, and then they'll, and I do get congratulated on like you've got a whole meeting and you've really used it once. Um, but I, I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's weird. I just think it's weird that other people don't want to work like this. I think that's weird. What's keeping everyone? How very outwardly thinking. Perfect. Well, thank you very, very much. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Your insights as well. It's been great to see how the way that you think. Oh, well, thank you. I, um, thank you for the questions. Thank you for... I, I've really enjoyed this. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.